Welcome to Trinity Dallas. We pray that this message will be a source of encouragement and hope in your life today. Enjoy today's message. Well, fantastic. So good to see all of you this morning. Particularly want to welcome all of you that are joining us this morning online. We have quite a community of believers online and people that are traveling today, people for one reason or another are not out today. And so we're glad that you're joining us and we appreciate the technology that we can all get together. If not in person, we can all be together in spirit. And so all of you that are joining us online, thank you for this morning for being with us. Today we are speaking out of the book of Colossians. That's sort of how we think of it, right? We got a Bible, we think of it as the book of Colossians. But really I want you to think of it in a different way this morning. I want you to think of it as a letter. Because that's what it is. Paul's writing to a church that he's never been to. And this letter to this church that he's never been to has application not just for that church, but for us today. And so this is a letter that he has written. I just want to make a segue here for just a minute. I'll get back on track in a second. Friday was February the 3rd. That was like two days ago, right? Today's the 5th. Friday was February the 3rd. On February the 3rd, I celebrated my 40th Christian anniversary. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's my birthday. And so 40 years ago on Friday, uh, my friend Ethan Pope, who now lives in Birmingham, Alabama, and always writes me on this time of the year, uh, Ethan Pope asked me this question. He said, if you were to die tonight, are you sure you would go to heaven? I fabricated an answer for him that had absolutely nothing to do with what the Bible said. And, uh, and he spoke to me in very direct but very kind terms that I needed to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he prayed with me that day, and that got the ball started. And here we are today, 40 years later. How would we have ever been together had Ethan Pope not asked me that question? So I'm grateful for that. And Ethan, if you're listening, I'm grateful for you and Janet. Paul's writing this letter at, of a prison cell in Rome. And the immediate occasion for writing the letter is that he has received one of his co-workers, Epaphras. Epaphras was the one who started the church in Coloss. And, uh, and so he comes to Rome and he says to Paul, he said, look, we got problems. We got heresy. Got false teachers that are raising up. And the church is in danger of losing its grip on Christ being the head of the church. And and so they prayed together, obviously, and Paul wrote this letter. And last week we talked about chapter 1, the first part of the letter, because Paul really makes his argument like this. He doesn't directly attack the heresy. He paints a picture of how great Christ is and how awesome he is compared to how unawesome the heresy is. And said, why would you do that when you could have this? And so he writes about Jesus. He says that Jesus is preeminent, that he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He is, creation came about because of him, through him, and for him. Then he says he's before all things. In him all things exist. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning. He's the alpha, the omega. He's born, firstborn from the dead. He's in him all the fullness of God dwells, and in all things he has the preeminence. 
He reminds us in chapter 1 that we've been qualified, that we've been delivered, that we've been conveyed, that we've been redeemed through his blood, that we've been forgiven of our sins. And he says, finally, that it's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. It's not the fact that just the gospel has come by word, by preaching to the Gentiles. That's awesome. But what's really awesome is that Jesus Christ comes in you and transforms you from the inside out. His transforming presence. So today I want to move to chapter 2, but I want to take the last two verses in chapter 1 because I still went really fast through them. I just want to give a little explanation because they set us up for chapter 2. It's in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul writes, it's him we preach. Him, that's the centrality of Paul's message, Jesus Christ. That's the centrality. That's Jesus who indwells believers. It's not a set of rules, but it is a glorious person. In him we, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man. He's preaching. He's making a proclamation. He's warning and teaching, awakening everyone to the need that they have with Christ. He says, I'm teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Every man is mentioned twice here in this verse, showing that there's no partiality, no exclusivity. He wants you to make sure that this is available to every person. And finally, he says that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The word perfect doesn't mean perfect in the sense that we think of perfect. It, it really means that you're full grown, you're complete, you're mature in your faith, you're mature in your character. And that Paul, having made input into your life through Epaphras, through this letter, it says that we want to present you a, a spotless bride to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Verse 29, he says, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Paul gave himself completely and wholeheartedly to this end, exerting all of his energy, all of his creativity, all of his ingenuity, all the gift that God had given him. He said that his working which works in me mightily. He links his life, his gift, his abilities with a source of strength that enables him to rise far above where his gift would have taken him. He says, to this end, I also labor. I'm giving myself wholeheartedly to it. Then we start in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. In this particular passage, the next chapter that I'm reading, what we're going to find out here is Paul is demonstrating his pastoral concern for the church. Speaking to the whole church again, it's a letter written to everybody. But in this particular part, chapter 2 that we call it, in this particular part of the Scripture, he's demonstrating his pastoral care. He's pastoring these people. He's loving them. And so watch what he says here. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you, and also for those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. He's concerned about the way the Colossians and the Laodiceans had responded to the false teachers. He's concerned about their response. He's wondering why, what the problem, what the issue is here. What is it that's so compelling about the heresy that's being spouted in, in not only in Colossus, but also in Laodicea. 
says verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Now, that's a lot of words in that verse, but here's what he's trying to convey to us, that the believers being welded together would be encouraged together so that nobody misses out. That's why it's so critical for you, me, for us to be connected to the body of Christ. It's one level of connection to come here on Sunday and to hear someone teach or preach or minister the Word of God. That, that's one level of connection, and that's a great level of connection. Those that are joining us today online, it's a wonderful way to connect. But God has more for you. He's got more for you. That's, that's why we talk about small groups. We encourage you to get in small groups. We encourage you to be in a small group. Why? Because that's where the connection is made to the body of Christ. That's the place where you can minister to others and where you can be ministered to, where you can know others and where others can know you. And so to make sure that no one misses out, it's important that we be connected at that entry level, really, uh, of Christianity, a place where we do life together, a place where we open our homes, where we practice hospitality, where we learn how to pastor one another and care for one another. You know, most of the people here call me Pastor Joe. But I don't think pastor is really a title. I really think pastor is a job description. It's a job description. And I'm not the only pastor here. There's many of you that pastor other people that care for them. It's like the shepherd, you know, making sure you're guiding the sheep to good pastures, to good water, where they can be nourished and cared for. And that's what happens in our small group. These shepherds, some people call them under-shepherds. I call them front-line shepherds because they're out there on the front line. And what are they doing? They're helping you, leading you, guiding you, helping you in your walk with God through the relationship that you have with them. Trust is built. And as that trust is built, it forms a highway into righteousness. And so here, Paul is saying that, that our hearts would be welded together, that we would be encouraged together, that no one would miss out. Verse 3 says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Hidden doesn't mean that they're concealed. Hidden means that previously and prior to this, they couldn't be seen like they are today. And so they're hidden. Treasures of Christ, they're laid up for you. Those treasures are meted out to us in relationships. One of the things that I was just noticing uh, on the screen during the time where we were kind of fellowshipping together, meeting and greeting one another, is uh, just the little moniker that says, Welcome Home. And that really is what church is supposed to be. It's home for us. It's home base for us. It's where we find families, where we find life. Paul's desperate that he wants to communicate how important it is not only just to stay connected, but to come home back to the place where the treasures of Christ are available for. What are those treasures? Those treasures come in our relationships with one another. Christianity without relationships, peer-to-peer -peer relationships, is really one-sided. If you 
get in your mind a picture of a Roman cross, a, a cross. What you see is a stay that is uh, vertical. It's a vertical part of the cross, right? The one that points to heaven. It points to our relationship with God who lives in heaven. But there's also the horizontal stay in the cross. And that points to our relationship with one another. And so Paul wants us to know that there is a treasure of wisdom, a treasure of knowledge that is bound up in Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. He's saying, don't be led astray by false reasoning and smooth words. Paul's going to kick into a mode now, and he's going to talk about three ways that you can be persuaded, not necessarily for the good. And he's going to take each one of these ways sort of head on here. He's going to talk about it. He doesn't want the church to be, to be persuaded and uh, led astray. Now, the implication here is, is that many of them in the church were already being persuaded and were already being led away. So Paul is beginning to make it clear that that's not the path they need to take. That's not the way that they need to go. He says, for though I am absent in the flesh, I'm not with them in person, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He's calling them back up. This is who you are. You're people who have your faith in good order. You're people that are steadfast in your devotion to Christ. So he's calling them back up, calling them back up. He says he's not an indifferent spectator here, but he's an active participant with a passionate love and care for the Colossian church. He wants them to be fully arrayed. He wants them to be ready for battle. He wants them to be fully adhering to Christ. They want to be unshakable in their faith, unshakable in their walk with God. So he's saying, hey, I expect to see you not only in good order, which means that you are ready for battle, that you understand that things aren't static. They're always changing. And the enemy is constantly trying to persuade you to keep you from being connected to the head of the body, that is Jesus, and trying to rob that glory for himself. So he says, I don't want any of you to be deceived with persuasive words because though I'm absent in the flesh, I'm there in the spirit with you, and I'm excited about seeing who you really are, that you're a people that keep your faith in good order, that you're steadfast, that you're ready for battle. Verse 5, verse 6 says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is a real simple idea here. This is, I want you to walk your talk. You talk good. Now let's see the walk, right? And so that's what we find in our culture a lot, right? Particularly in North Dallas. I mean, we got lots of people that are smart. They go to church, they pick up the lingo. They go to small group, they pick up all the little nuances of what it is to be a Christian, but there's no substance of Christ in them. So they talk a good talk, but when it comes down to living righteously, there's a few problems. That's why you need to be connected, right? Because somebody's going to call you out for hypocrisy. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's really a good thing. That is really a good thing. Because look, 
the more people, this is contagious. Both of these are contagious. One side of the contagious is that, you know, you talk a whole lot bigger than you actually walk. And so younger people, younger Christians, are, look, they like to try to follow. This must be how Christianity's lived. He's been going to church for 10 years. He ought to know. No, he's got 10 years of bad habits because he's never been connected in a small group. He's aloof. He's out there. Listen, church bouncing, church hopping, whatever you want to call it, whatever the newest, neatest, coolest speaker is, they go to see that. They hear the lingo. They can talk to you about all the stuff, but they're not connected. They're unaccountable. They're doing their own deal. Paul says, I don't want you to be persuaded by those guys. So therefore, in the same way that you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. When you opened your heart and your life to Jesus, remember back there how passionate you were for God. I was thinking about 40 years ago. I, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say that because I don't want you to think I'm that old. <laughs> 40 years ago, I asked Christ to come into my heart. Forty years ago, it changed my life. And I want to tell you, I didn't get here just because I prayed the prayer 40 years ago. I got here because Nancy and I connected the family, and I got rebuked on a daily basis for years. For years. Pastor Terry Moore, he was here a couple of weeks ago. He's, he's our pastor at uh, Brad Burns, uh, we, had a, we had started this little church called Sojourn Church, and there was a, you know, a five, six of us who became elders. I was 28 years old. No, hang on just a minute. I was 25 years old when I became an elder. Now, let me just tell you something. 25 is not an elder. <laughs> Absolutely no business being an elder. But what happened to me, because I was connected to the other guys who were about 8, 9, 10 years older than me, they took me under their wing, each one of them, and made it their responsibility to rebuke me on a daily basis. Because I needed it. I needed it. And, and so, so, you know, being connected is the reason that I'm here today. Had we not been connected, I would have gone astray. I would have been persuaded, if nothing else, just by, long, by, uh, you know, just by being on my own, doing my own thing. So it's so critical and so important. If you want to be a Christian on fire for God 40 years after you became a Christian, you need to get connected. Need to get connected. One of the greatest connections that I have with calling sin, sin in my life is my wife. She knows me up, down, inside, outside. She sees me left, right. She, is, she sees me. And she is not scared to call me out. Yeah, right, right. That's true, isn't it? It's true. And, and, so, and so I have Nancy in my life. I'm connected to her. We're connected to the body. But I have other friends who know me. Pastor Robert and I have been friends for 39 years. 39 years. I know him inside and out. He knows me inside and out. We've walked through some very deep, very difficult seasons together. He's helped me. I've helped him. Pastor Matthew, 
20 years we've been friends. 20 years. And so I know, I mean, the only fight that he and Jane ever had, I was there when it happened. <laughs> the only one. And so I know them. I know their marriage. I know their life. I know their kids. What you see is what you get. And I could go on and on. Pastor Terry and Susan. I, I mean, you know, we, yeah, we could go on and on and on. But all the people that we had in our lives that kept us connected, that kept us going, would not be here today for that, had it not been for that. So I'm just telling you how important this is for you to be connected to. And when I mean connected, I don't mean just in a mechanical way, but you can start there. That's okay to start mechanically but that you have your heart open to new friends, new relationships, and particularly that you're willing, humble, to be adjusted. If you can't be adjusted, then you're not going to make it very long. Just not going to make it very long. Because when we get together, the presence of God is there, and the light from His presence shines into the darkness of our deeds, our actions, and our heart. And it exposes those things over time that God wants to deal with. That he wants to deal with. So therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Let your walk match your talk. Verse 7 says that you're rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. I love this passage because really this passage gives you right here, this verse 7, gives you the aspects to our Christian walk. Yeah, there are four aspects here that, uh, to our Christian walk. Number one is that you're rooted. That you're rooted. The day that Ethan Pope led me to Christ was the day that he stuck me into the ground of the church. And I began to get roots. What are those roots? Those relationships that we have. That network of people in our lives. That you're rooted in the body of Christ. That you have your roots going into relationship. So the first aspect of your Christian walk is that you're rooted. Something that was accomplished for you when you received Christ by faith. You're rooted in the faith. You're rooted in Jesus Christ, right? Number two is that you be built up. Being built up describes an ongoing process, which is important for us because most of the time we say, well, we've checked the box. We're now Christians. We have a church. We checked that box. And so I'm going to heaven. We've checked that box. That, look, that's a heresy in and of itself. Because your Christian walk is not about checking the box. It's about responding daily in your relationship with God. Having a response, talking to him, him talking back to you. Hearing his voice, speaking out those issues and things that are going on in your own life. So you're rooted, you're built up. Number three, you're established. That word there in the NIV is translated strengthened. But you're established or strengthened in the faith. Just as you were taught, in the same way that it was proclaimed to you, it was taught to you, that you would be established and strengthened in the faith, ongoing process working in your heart and your life. 
And finally, that you be abounding with thanksgiving, that it would be continual and habitual. So Christ, again, is communicating through Paul how important giving of thanks really is. It's, it's important because it's the highway into the throne room of heaven. We'll enter his gates with thanksgiving in our heart. We enter his courts with praise, is what the psalmist says. And so thanksgiving is so important. So those four items, being rooted, being built up, being established and strengthened, and giving of thanks continually and habitually, those are the aspects, are the foundation of our walk with God. In the same way that you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. How are we going to walk in him? By being rooted, by being built up, by being established, by abounding in thanksgiving. Those, if you're making a checklist, those four would be good put on your checklist. Yeah. Verse 8 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So he's laid out these four essentials for your foundation, for your walk with God, and he says, now, don't let anyone cheat you. Don't let anyone cheat you. What he's talking about here is about vain and empty philosophy. This is the first of the warnings he's going to give in this chapter. And this particular warning is about following a philosophy that is not Christ. Something that's empty, that'll get you nowhere. He said, these things are empty deceit. He said, according to the tradition of men and according to the basic principles of the world and not according to, to Christ. So he says, be on your guard. The idea is don't let anybody take you captive with some weird or empty philosophy about life, about Christianity. You always are measuring against the person of Jesus Christ, right? Again, if we are out on our own doing our own thing, it's so easy to get pulled and persuaded and, and captive to empty philosophy, that's why we need to be with each other. That's why it's important that we be with each other. So he says, be on your guard. Don't let anyone trap you or lead you away like a prisoner of war because Jesus is the standard by which all doctrine is judged. Look to Jesus, right? For in him, verse 9 says, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ is not only all, but he's all that you need for salvation. He's everything that you need for salvation. Christ and Christ alone. Why? Because in him is the fullness of God. This is a reference back to John chapter 1, verse 1, where he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when he talks about Jesus being in the fullness of the Godhead, he's saying the incarnate Word, that Jesus is now, as flesh has wrapped around that incarnate word and became a person, right? He says that incarnate word is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10 says, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power, not legalism, but Christ. So he's hit this 
uh, vain uh, philosophy and dealt with the empty philosophical arguments that people have to draw them away from Christ, and now he's going to move into something called legalism. Legalism. It's the Jewish ritual that the Hellenist Jews were trying to get the new believers and new converts to walk in. The idea that Christ was not enough, that not only did you have to have Christ, but you also had to have these particular ways of walking religiously in order to demonstrate the fact that you're saved and you have salvation in your life. So he says here, and you're complete in him. That's what I want you to know. You don't need all that other stuff, that philosophy, nor this legalism, because he's the head of all principality and power, and it's not legalism, but Christ, possessing him. When you possess him, you have all that you need. He's all sufficient. There's no need for empty philosophy. There's no need for the ritual of the Mosaic law. There's no need for any of that stuff or uh, worshiping spirit begin, uh, beings in the pagan world. There's no need for that. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Finding Christ is finding reality that's symbolized by the mosaic circumcision. When you find Jesus, he's the reality of that cutting away of the flesh. He's the reality of that, bring, of that coming into the new covenant, into the covenant of God. And so the circumcision of the flesh was a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. And so he says here, you... We've found Christ, then you found the reality that's symbolized in, Mosaic, in Moses' circumcision. We're discarding, we're putting off the outward show of our covenant with God, and we're receiving the inward transformation of the Spirit. You see where he's going to again? He, he's now making his argument. He started with that vain and empty philosophy. Now he's going into rituals and, and religious legalism. Verse 12 says, You're buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It's in baptism that we share with Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. Water baptism is not some magic rite of passage, but it's our act of obedience in which we confess our faith, we symbolize the essence of our faith, and apart from real faith, then baptism is empty and meaningless. So they can get you circumcised, and they can get you in the water baptized, but unless you're doing this by faith in your heart, it offers you nothing but an empty experience. He says in verse 13, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. The idea here is that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but Christ made us spiritually alive. So he's saying that uh, the, it's not the ritual that gave you the spiritual life. It's Christ that gave you the spiritual life. 
having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We were under indictment from God, under indictment for a crime that we could not pay for ourselves, sin. And so what did Jesus did? He wiped out that indictment towards us. He canceled that. Why? And, and he took it out of the way. Why? Because it's contrary to us. There's no way that we could have done it for ourselves. But Christ did it for us, having nailed it to the cross. Verse 15, and having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus conquered every enemy, and he stripped the enemy of both his weapons and his authority. In an open display of victory, he has publicly disgraced him by the resurrection. Get the idea here. The enemy had authority and the enemy had weapons and the enemy had power. But when Jesus was raised up from the dead, he disarmed him of all those weapons. That indictment, that, that, that crime against us was canceled out so that we could have life. So Paul's here saying, look, it's, it's what Jesus did. It's not what you're doing. It's what he did already for us. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath. All these things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Jesus. Since Christ is sufficient and victorious, the question is, why would you fall for legalism, heresy, and bondage that legalism brings? Why would you do that? None of this stuff was going to help you. I can imagine now the false teachers squirming in their seats as this letter was written because Paul is making it very clear the preeminence and the sufficiency that's in Christ Jesus, making it very clear. Then verse 18 says, Well, no, let no one cheat you of your reward. The NIV says, disqualify you. How do they cheat you? By taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen and vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Whoa, he zeroed in on somebody. So what is he saying? Let no one deny your claim to be a Christian. I mean, they're going to say that you don't have the right philosophy. They're going to say that you haven't done the right things. They're going to say that this is the way that you should walk, walk in this. But Jesus is our standard. He's the one that we look to. And so don't let anyone deny your claim to be a Christian. These self-inflated guys were on a self-embasement, relying upon imaginary and alleged visions that they have. They had no true spiritual enlightenment. They're just trying to get you to follow them. They're acting like they're very pious. But they're nothing but religious, vain and empty. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the bodies nourished and knit together by the joints and the ligaments, ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. These people, they're out of touch with Jesus. 
They're not connected to the body, nor are they connected to the head. They are enthralled by their own imaginations. They never mature. They never are nourished. They never are increasing in the knowledge of God. <laughs> so get away from them. Why would you choose that when you could have Christ? Verse 20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to res reg regulation? So he's hit vain and empty philosophies. He's hit on Jewish legalism and the legalism to pagan idols. Now what's he doing? He said, well, you know, he's hitting on the idea that you don't have to be a monk in a monastery or a nun in a nunnery to get this. You don't have to be an aesthetic. You don't have to be that. What is an ascetic? Well, it's one who relies upon his own self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgement in order to garner the favor of God. The ascetics. There were a sect of people that if they just disciplined themselves more, if they just abstained from eating pork or just abstained from eating shrimp, or just abstain from whatever it is that you think is against the law to eat in the Bible, just know this, that Jesus Christ has made all things clean with the giving of thanks. These guys were ascetic, some of them. And why would you want to be like them? Why on earth would you think that more of the favor of God could come that way than what Jesus has already done for you? Why would you want to take on the error of the ascetics? Thinking that somehow your self-imposed man-made rules and regulations would give you favor with God. That's what he's saying. Vain and empty philosophies. Jewish legalism and adherence to pagan idols. Being a self-disciplined ascetic. None of those things work. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's Christ and Christ alone. They say, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all things, which all concern things, which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctors and doctrine of men. All these rules are human. They've got nothing to do with Christ, he's saying. Whose death and resurrection was and is totally sufficient to save us and set us free from sin and death. Verse 22, verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but they are absolutely no value against the indulgence of the flesh. <laughs> you think you are taming your flesh? You're not. Because the only thing, the only power that can subdue your flesh is the indwelling Christ Jesus inside of you. That's it. The incarnate word inside of you. They have an appearance of wisdom. They have an appearance of humility. The neglect of the body seems like it would be of value. 
But it's not. But it's not. Only the power of the indwelling Christ gives us the grace to crucify the flesh and receive the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in our pursuit of God. So in Colossians chapter 2, Paul warns us. He warns us of the error of empty philosophy. He warns us of the error, warns us of the error of legalism. He warns us of the era of asceticism with its self-imposed religious sacrifices. All these, he says, are useless in our walk with God. And some of them perhaps disqualifying in our pursuit of a deeper, more meaningful relationship with God. But the lessons of Colossians 2 are sure. The indwelling Christ Jesus is all sufficient to keep you rooted, built up, established and strengthened in the faith, and overflowing with joy. Now, I just gave you two hours worth of theology in about 35 minutes. But hey, hold your applause. It's okay. Because Christ is sufficient to make what I said real to you. Amen? Let's all stand together. Remember what I told you at the beginning? Chapter 1 and chapter 2 are about doctrine. They're about doctrine. Paul is reminding us of the preeminence of Christ. And then he is telling us that, hey, there's some things that you've been persuaded by that won't help you at all. It's only being connected to the body and connected to Christ that will subdue the sin nature in you and cause you to flourish in Christ. It's not your self-discipline. That's not going to help you. It's better than not being disciplined in some cases, but it's not going to help you. What's going to help you is the indwelling Christ in you, the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you into all truth. And so as the indwelling Christ is all sufficient, that's his story in chapter 2. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, you're going to learn about how we walk this out, what it actually looks like relationally. And so you're going to enjoy it. If you want to read ahead, Colossians chapter 3 for next week. Well, just put both hands in the air like this. Say this with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are all sufficient for me. And I ask you today, help me become more connected to you and to the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, give somebody a handshake, a hug, a high five. Thank you for being here today. God bless you. And have an awesome week. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to dive deeper into today's message, go to trinitydallas.com forward slash sermons to receive your copy of the notes. If today's message encouraged you, do someone else a favor and share it with them. Also be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. A special shout out to all those who partner with us through their giving. Your contributions have enabled us to touch the lives of people in our community as well as around the globe. Visit us at trinitydallas.com forward slash give to partner with what God is doing through Trinity Dallas.